Strip now. retaliates after Syria fires across the border. To have uh, Syrian troops actually firing onto uh, Turkish ter- territory is extraordinary. Uh, but I think this was just a crazy colonel. I-, I don't imagine for a moment that there were any orders to fire at Turkey. Will NATO troops leave Afghanistan sooner rather than later? And it's new hands on deck for the Royal Navy ship that's still being built. The sounds last night from Achukale in Turkey where five people were killed after Syrian mortars were fired from across the border. For the first time in Syria's 18-month conflict, Turkey has fired back. Turkey is a member of NATO and last night NATO ambassadors met in Brussels and said they would support Turkey. The US Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, called the increasing tensions very, very dangerous. We are outraged that the Syrians have been shooting across the border. We are very regretful about the loss of life that has occurred on the Turkish side. We are working with our Turkish friends to discuss what uh, the best way forward would be. Well, a little earlier I spoke to former British ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green. I asked him if he thought something had been on the cards. Well, there's always a risk of it uh, when you've got um, military forces close to a border uh, and when there's a civil war going on in Syria. Uh, It's clearly a very serious incident, uh, and to have uh, Syrian troops actually firing onto uh, Turkish territory is extraordinary. Uh, But I think this was just a crazy colonel. I I don't imagine for a moment that there were any orders to fire at Turkey. Uh, Assad has absolutely no interest in going to war with Turkey, and indeed Turkey has no interest in going to war with Syria. So uh, I hope that um, calmer uh, thoughts will prevail pretty soon. Does this mean that you don't think this will escalate? I don't think it will escalate because I don't think either party has uh, an interest in escalating it. Uh, Assad doesn't have to bother about public opinion. Um, the, the Turks do, and they've now done, I suggest, what their uh, opinion would demand, which is to take some kind of action uh, to deter any further such incident. So I'd have thought the Turks could probably rest on that. I hope they can. What about the position of NATO with Turkey being a member? Does it mm. mean it will have to step in and defend its member? Well, we have a treaty obligation to do just that if Turkey is threatened, but I wouldn't regard a couple of mortar shells as a threat to Turkey. What would it take, do you think, Sir Andrew? It would take um, an air attack on Turkey uh, and or uh, a concerted uh, land assault on some part of Turkey, but uh, those things, in my view, are not going to happen. Tell us a bit about the Turkish-Syrian border, this area, because I understand the rebels have been using it as a way of getting weapons in. Mm. Well, it's quite a long border for a start, and and there's no particular, uh, for most of it, there's no particular physical um, uh, problem. Uh, There's no huge river or range of mountains or something. Uh, Most of the border is is just on flat land, so it's very easy to infiltrate. Uh, And to some extent, the the Turks have um, 
in deciding from the outset to support the uh, Syrian rebels uh, have taken a risk that it could lead to trouble on their border. So you seem to say that this is not likely to escalate, but this is the first time that civilians in Turkey have actually been killed as a result. If that kind of thing does happen again, surely the pressure will increase. Yes, it would. It would increase on the Turkish government, but I think that's the reason why the Syrian government will get a grip of their crazy colonels. Um, why would they want to go to war with Turkey or get into a serious military confrontation with Turkey when every soldier and every tank they've got is trying to get control back in, in uh, Aleppo and, to some extent, Damascus? That was the former British ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green, speaking to me earlier. Well, I'm joined now by FBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Um, Sir Andrew there, very confident the situation won't escalate. Uh, do you agree? Um, I might have done last night, but the problem is this morning in Ankara, the Turkish parliament gave the government, and this is a cross-party, gave the government permission to uh, exercise operations outside of Turkey. In other words... Is there the political willpower to do that? Well, you see, people like Andrew Green and others are saying, no, the the Turkish people don't want it, that may be so. But it doesn't take into consideration that... Do you remember when the Syrians uh, shot down a Turkish aeroplane a couple of months ago? And the Turks says, listen, we'll do something about this. We recognise this was a Mm -hmm. mistake. They are now saying, we're going to do something about it, if necessary. And also... if, when I was talking last night, late last night, to people in the State Department, and they were saying, we're not even sure that this could be what Andrew calls, you know, the crazy colonel. Uh, it could even be one of the rebel groups trying to ginger up the Turks. So trying to prevent to the Turks to yeah. actually take But they don't know, attack. and that's the problem for the Americans and for the Brits. They don't actually know. But watch the consequences of the unexpected agreement in the Turkish parliament this morning that Turkey can have, the generals can have permission to go outside of Turkish borders. Very important. Just explain to us um, this Article 4, NATO members having convened uh, under this article. It's only the second time in the organisation's 63-year history. Um, Just explain what that means exactly. Well, basically, did you ever read The Three Musketeers? Go on. All for (laughs) one and one for all. Indeed. And that, if you you look at it that way, that's 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 simple. Is it actually going to uh, transpire into anything? No, what happened is that... that, what happened was that the, the Turkish ambassador to the United Nations went to the Security Council and said, you must condemn this. Then the Turkish ambassador, permanent representative as he is, uh, to, in Brussels to NATO said, you must also condemn this and you must give us support. In other words, if we do something, you must give us the support. So support just need. being condoning or, or actually doing something? Sympathetic. It's sympathetic, and I think that's the diplomacy of this. What's not going to happen is there's not going to be a meeting, for example, next week when there's a NATO defence ministers meeting in Brussels. They're not going to turn around and say, well, look, if this happens again, we will go and support, physically support, uh, Turkey. Now, in the State Department in America, there's a group of them that really believes this. They believe this is a very good thing, this attack. A very good thing indeed, because they say this problem of Syria has got to be resolved regionally. And if Turkey can be provoked, and don't forget the borders of Syria, Jordan, Iraq, uh, Israel, if they can actually turn around and say, look, this has gone too far, we are actually going to sort out Syria. Then the Americans, the Brits, and all the other sort of hangers-on of this superpower that can't be super, are going to sit there and say, 
that's what we thought would happen, and that's what we were saying was the, was, the, was the solution to the whole thing 12 months ago. In other words, it's this group, it's not the whole of the State Department, it's a group in the State Department that's telling Hillary Clinton this might actually turn out to be a good thing. Chris, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come is the Labour Party still friends with the forces and the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth won't be ready for at least eight years. So why has it already got its own ship's company? It's been argued that without interpreters, the British military would be unable to function in Afghanistan. But their role, as in the aftermath of the Iraq war, has thrown up extremely difficult issues for the British government. One former interpreter, who we'll call Rafi, has forced the UK border agency into a U-turn after originally rejecting his asylum claim over lack of evidence to convince them he'd work for the British Army and that he'd faced death threats from insurgents. Well, the Conservative MP Julian Lewis has recently brought brought up the issue in the House of Commons and he joins us now. Hello, Julian. Um, Hello. What duty does Britain owe interpreters like this person, Rafi? Well, I think it owes an immense moral duty and also a practical duty as well because if we don't carry out the moral duty to look after people who put their heads above the parapet in the most literal sense of the word, then we'll run into the practical problem that we won't be able to find people to perform such a vital role in situations like this in the future. Do you think then that they deserve greater rights than other asylum seekers? Well, they deserve uh, to have taken into account the level of threat that led them to seek asylum. And it is almost true by definition that on any meritocratic assessment of their case, they should register very high up in the priorities of the people who ought to get preferential treatment. Now, Rafi did smuggle his way into Britain where he presented his case to the UK authorities. What does that say, though, about the systems in place for dealing with this kind of claim? Well, I think you're you're hinting at the right point there. Um, the fact that it should be necessary, in inverted commas, for someone to go to those sort of lengths is extremely worrying. Uh, you see, the, 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 the problem, I suspect, lies in a disconnect between the Ministry of Defence, which is, I'm sure, all too well aware of what we owe to people who perform such a, a dangerous and important role, and the Borders Agency, which obviously comes under an entirely different department. And uh, I would have thought that there really needs to be some joining up of the two elements so that people who fall into this special category in relation to the service they perform for UK armed forces are not then tripped up by bureaucrats regulations in the Home Department, especially as when we're constantly reading of the most undeserving cases who seem to have no difficulty in getting here and staying here. It does seem actually quite extraordinary, though, that in this particular case, um, it only took a few phone calls and a bit of research by some journalists to ascertain that Rafi's story did seem to be true because he had people standing up saying how long he had worked in the British Army and, and the government couldn't sort that out and find out. Yes, I mean, all I have to go by are the reports in, in the Times and I, I must say that the Times has done an excellent job on this just as they did previously with the similar dilemmas over the predicament of uh, interpreters for our forces in Iraq uh, and I, I suspect that the, the journalists who've specialised in this uh, would, would have been surprised as anybody else that having had that previous campaign that arrangements haven't been put in place that enabled it to be not necessary 
for a similar campaign to be waged on Rafi's behalf. Christopher Lee, I suppose the danger is that anyone seeking asylum in the UK may use this as an easy way in. They do. Um, I mean, as Julian was saying, you know, some people get in very easily. They just say, listen, if I go back to my country, I'm going to get whacked. But I think, Julian, this raises a much bigger area, which we've seen before. Uh, For example, a Fijian soldier working uh, or serving in the Black Watch may not be able to come here when he leaves the regiment. And we've seen it so many times that I think that it's a a much bigger issue simply than the the case of Rafi. Rafi also raises another point, and that is that not always people who've worked with the British forces are under threat. Iraq, a lot of them were. It was very clear. There were public pronouncements by the people in Iraq that they were going to kill them. Uh, Taliban have said sort of nasty things. It's not so much when, while the British forces are still there, but when British forces, American forces leave, a lot of people are going to be vulnerable. But I think it's the wider issue of who comes here within the forces, who have served in the forces, sometimes for 20 years, so and where cannot should ba- find a home here. So, where should, where should, Julia, where should the balance be struck between the duty to the British armed forces and the danger that's been incurred in doing that? Well, uh, as Christopher says, there, there, there is this wider issue which veterans' aid have been very much involved in about people, particularly Commonwealth soldiers, who have found themselves disqualified on the grounds of uh, petty disciplinary offences uh, within the armed forces that wouldn't even count as, as criminal offences being used as a bar. Um, but I, I have to say that the, the people who have put themselves in a particularly exposed and dangerous position obviously ought to be those most urgently and sympathetically considered. How do you think this should be taken forward? What do we need to improve the system? I think the MOD needs to set up some dedicated mini um, sub-department, whatever you want to call it, some unit to have particular regard to these sort of cases because the problem that we've got is that the decision, which I personally always thought was a foolish one, to announce an arbitrary withdrawal date from Afghanistan has given an incentive to our opponents in that country to intensify their attacks on our troops and the people who uh, assist them because they want to give the impression when we leave that they have been responsible for driving them out. So I think there will be more and more of these cases and we need to set up a proper procedure to deal with them in a just and fair and decent way. Christopher, briefly. How's the Commons Defence Committee ought to grab hold of this one and investigate it? The second thing is Hammond, Philip Hammond, the, the Defence Secretary, what he's got to do is to tell his armed forces minister, get hold of the commanding officers who worked with these guys, just say to them, listen, is this guy really in danger? And if, if the answer is yes, and not all of them are, then that's it. And he, the Secretary of State, could just say, say to any other department, listen, fix it. This is wrong. Christopher, stay with us. Julian Lewis, thanks for your time today. Thank you. This week, NATO Secretary-General said Western withdrawal from Afghanistan could come sooner than expected. In a newspaper interview, Anya's Foraz Moussen said options were being studied for a speedier exit than we should should know what's possible in three months' time. Meanwhile, the British ambassador to Kabul has made similar comments suggesting that Afghanistan should be left to get on with things. Sir Richard Stagg told the Guardian newspaper that the process of withdrawal could, in certain circumstances, be accelerated. I'm joined now by BBC correspondent Quentin Somerville in Kabul. Thanks for your time today, Quentin. Um, Ambassadors and ministers alike are saying this kind of thing, aren't they? 
That's right. Uh, the the NATO um, Secretary General, his comments were walked back a little bit. He tried to retract them afterwards. But what this really gets gets to is that there is a feeling here. There's two things going on when you speak to not just senior diplomats in Kabul, but senior generals as well, is that there's a fatigue with this war. Everybody knows that people back in Britain are sick of it. Uh, the recent spate of green on blue killings, which uh, you know a, f- a quarter of all British soldiers who have been killed this year in Afghanistan were killed by the Afghans they serve with is also adding to that weariness of this war. And there is a general sense that after, well, we're approaching nearly 11 years of this war, President Karzai and his government should get on with it. And wouldn't it be better, would the Taliban still keep attacking with the ferocity that they attack if infidels, as they like to term foreign troops, were no longer on Afghan soil? Well, the answer for many people is no, they wouldn't. And it it would be better if the international community started drawing back and letting Afghanistan take responsibility, not just for its security, but for its government and for everything else. And is the government of Hamid Karzai keen to get on with running the country on its own? I don't think it possibly can. This is a government that's relied on Western handouts for many, many years. It's almost retail rules, you know, if you break it, you've got to pay for it. And that's kind of how President Karzai feels about his country and the West's responsibility to it. But there's also a schizophrenic uh, feeling among many Afghans that while they realise... Uh, while, while some of them accept that foreign troops need to stay here to fight the Taliban, they're also desperate to see foreign troops to go. They want this country, uh, they want to take control of their own country. But this is still one of the poorest countries in the world. It's still got appalling rates of corruption in the army, uh, in the police, and in President Karzai's government. So all of that means that come to 2014, when most foreign uh, combat troops leave... Afghanistan's still going to be in a pretty bad state and is still going to struggle to to be a peaceful society and to be a cohesive society and to be able to progress. If Sir Richard Stagg um, thinks the Taliban are ready to talk, what role, if any, could the Taliban play in the future of Afghanistan? I think the ambassador's wrong on that. Um, I, there's no indication whatsoever that the Taliban are ready to talk. You remember a while ago there was talk of the Taliban opening an office in Qatar in the uh, in Doha. Indeed. So then they'd have a, an official place and you'd know that this was actually the Taliban you were talking to and you'd be able to negotiate. Well, that's all dried up, that process. And when you speak to people in the know, they seem to say that nothing will happen till after 2014, not just because foreign troops leave then, but because... Uh, The Taliban have always said from the very beginning that they do not recognise President Karzai. They they think he's a Western puppet. And it's almost unconscionable for the Taliban to sit down and talk to that president. So perhaps when a new president comes in, there might be be a possibility for talks. And then there's a more sophisticated point as well. President Karzai's power base, his tribe, his family, come from the South. If he starts allowing bringing the Taliban to the table, well, they're also a southern tribe, if you like. That would undercut his family's interests. So from a very selfish point of view, some diplomats believe he will not engage with the Taliban, and there certainly doesn't seem to be any progress in that direction. We don't expect anything until after 2014. Christopher Lee, um, is there going to be, do you think, an earlier or or indeed quicker exit from Afghanistan? Not if 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 you listen to what the guys have been saying this week. And it appears at one stage that they were singing from the same hymn sheet, and I don't think they are. It is a logical thing to believe. Next week, there is the meeting, which I mentioned earlier, a meeting of uh, NATO defence ministers in Brussels. They're going to be talking of how far have we got with training the army, etc., etc. But they're also going to be saying this. General Jones, who's running the show, really, 
for the Americans in Afghanistan. He is preparing a report now which goes to uh, President uh, Barack Obama. We've got an election on November the 6th. Uh, that report probably won't get to the president until after we know the result of, of the election. That is going to be the decider. What America decides to do, the rest of us are going on along with it. But what they're saying in the Pentagon is this. Very, very simple. Do not believe dates. When you get some sort of solution, it's going to gradually creep up on everybody. It's almost as saying, well, it actually, it's not as bad as it used to be. It's not going to be rapid dates, rapid solution, because Karzai's gone or whatever. The other thing they're saying is that in, in, in certainly within the next decade, the president of Afghanistan is very likely to be Mullah Omar. Uh, Quentin, Taliban. Sir. I, that's one of your one of your theories. I'm going to hold you to Christopher and see if it comes true. Um, uh, Quentin, um, the next NATO Secretary General uh, Agnes Rasmussen thinks that we'll know more in three months. Is that all about that report that Christopher was talking to? About uh, he can yeah he consistently says that the the Lisbon process the the the, uh, the timetable that's been agreed is the one that they'll stick to and that nothing will divert NATO from that strategy. Well. Things do divert. Unexpected things do, and I and I really believe that the spate of green on blue killings could could be enough. These insider attacks could be enough to to uh, to change policies, to change uh, public opinion. And politicians, many politicians around the world, are looking for an excuse to get out of this war. They realise how deeply unpopular uh, it is, and there are, uh, it's also worth bearing in mind. Afghan forces are now at their absolute maximum. They'll never be bigger. There's over 300,000 of them, army and police. Uh, they've been trained up over the past couple of years by international soldiers. The number of international soldiers has never been higher. It's now decreasing and will only get smaller. So what's the point of staying for another two years? And what's the point of staying for another two years if your Afghan allies are turning around and shooting you dead? Quentin Somerville in Kabul. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Royal Marines from 4-5 Commando have been practising the art of amphibious warfare off the Cornish coast ahead of a two-month deployment to the Mediterranean. Next week, the Marines and the rest of the Multinational Response Force Task Group will sail south to meet with their foreign allies for Exercise Cougar. BFBS's James Banks spoke to Commodore Paddy McAlpine, Commander UK Task Force, and asked him how important this exercise was for future multinational operations. It's a great opportunity to train. It's a great opportunity to show the versatility uh, of the uh, Response Force Task Group, the RFTG, to see how adaptable we are. It's a great opportunity to go and train alongside uh, future partners in any sort of mission that we might partake in. Now, seeing these amphibious landings here today, how much of this is, is relearning skills that maybe have weren't the priority during, during Afghanistan or deployments to Afghanistan? It's a great opportunity to relearn skills. There has always been a, a core skill within the uh, Three Commander Brigade uh, and the Royal Navy in amphibious uh, landings, amphibious warfare. And this is a bit of a rehearsal, a bit of a refresher for everyone involved. Obviously, this is a, a high readiness force ready to respond to the unexpected. Mm. What are the challenges of, of training such a force to deploy on an exercise which could turn into a, a further deployment? It could turn into a further deployment anywhere in the world doing anything. We're a versatile, adaptable, integrated force. Uh, and we're the crystal in which everything else is going to form. We could be integrated into a multinational task group uh, or I could split the task group and do a number of tasks uh, in any number of different areas. Obviously, your predecessor, similar exercise last year, ended up deploying support operations in Libya or off the coast of Libya. Indeed. 
It's very obviously well publicised that the political tension is in Syria at the moment. What, how much of the challenge is this for your future deployment? And this is not one of my missions uh, to go and do any sort of operation at the moment. It's a training deployment, and we'll go down to the Mediterranean and train alongside uh, the French. Very important opportunity to prove the combined joint expeditionary force concept. Uh, and then we'll operate with the Americans coming back from the Far East, uh, and then an opportunity to train in Albania. So I have no specific mission. My job is to actually take a task group of ships to sea and train them. We know that it's an exercise in plan, but people will see this as a somewhat of a show of force. What would you say to them? It's an opportunity to train, to integrate, to adapt, to, be, to prove how flexible we are. Uh, and then we will get involved where we are required. But at the moment, I have no mission uh, other than take a task group to see and train them. Commodore Paddy McAlpine talking to BFBS reporter James Banks. We're in the middle of political party conference season in the UK and this week it was Labour's get-together in Manchester. Defence got an airing on Monday with attacks on the government for treating veterans and serving personnel wrongly and unfairly. The Shadow Defence Secretary promised better treatment under Labour and greater stability from new 10-year rolling budgets, but he wouldn't promise that there would be no more redundancies if he was in the MOD. James Hurst reports. In the exhibition hall here at Manchester Central, among the stands for unions, charities and businesses, is one with a banner proclaiming Labour Friends of the Forces. This group, set up at Labour's conference last year, now has 700 members, one of them proudly displaying his medals at the stand. This is the image Labour want, not the image of their last government having overspent and under-equipped troops. In the conference hall, a glossy video trumpeted a Labour initiative asking businesses to guarantee job interviews to forces veterans. In contrast, the coalition were branded wrong and unfair for their cuts to the services. Among those taking to the stage, a former army officer and a local councillor. The closure of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, clearly illustrates that this Conservative-led government and their draconian cuts know no bounds. The men and women of our armed forces are second to none. So it hits me in the chest when I read of redundancies, pensions not being paid, morale being paid scant regard. Going on the attack is one thing, offering solutions is another. We have to address some of the issues in opposition that we would have to address if we were in government. And that's why myself and the Shadow Defence team have been really clear about the fact that we would have to make savings when it comes to defence. So, no spending spree from Labour. In his speech, Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy did explain how they would address one issue, though. Years of overspending and delays on equipment. His solution, a ten-year rolling budget, updated and independently checked by the National Audit Office each year. He told me that would make ministers accountable for what they did, instead of answering for their predecessors. It also creates a sense of discipline within, within the Ministry of Defence. It changes the architecture of the defence budget and that in terms of the 10-year plan, but it also, because of the real-time external review, it creates a change in the culture at the MOD. We've taken advice on this. We think it will work. We just can't continue with the mistakes of the past that, that have dogged all of the political parties that have been in power. It's a dramatic change in culture and architecture. I'd like the government to adopt it as their policy as well, and then we could talk about it together. The government, though, say they've already brought discipline to the MOD and balanced the defence budget. Look, the, the government faced both ways in this argument. It's not true, but they say there was a 38 billion black hole. That's not true. But they said they fixed it. No, you can't fix a problem that they claim was that significant in such a short period of time in politics. And, they, I mean, Liam Fox announced that 
he had balanced the books. Philip Hammond has now announced he's balanced the books. They've announced the same thing twice from two different sectors of state. The fact is, let's not get involved in all the kind of politicians patting themselves on the back and this sort of stuff. Let's have outside experts making that decision. Like so many other areas, Labour won't yet say what they'd spend and what they'd cut in defence. With two and a half years to an election, they say they can't know how much money they might have. But defence is clearly part of their drive to convince voters they've learnt from the mistakes of their past and they won't repeat them. BFPS reporter James Hurst there. Uh, Christopher, it is good to sound easy to sound reasonable when you're in opposition, isn't it? Yeah, it is, um, especially in the logic of it. You know, how, how can we see the books until we get into power? And it's two and a half years to go. I think I, I think he said that on this programme, didn't he? Sort of, sort of. Mm. I think he said so. He also said he'd come back on this programme and, and and tell you when Jim, you're invited <clears throat> when the uh, when when the job's done. We, let's remember one thing: if you go to the services, especially those who've done a lot of analysis on it you'll find the services of always preferred Labour governments. And I remember the, the, the Chief of Defence Staff, Admiral uh, Lord Lewin, once saying the best defence minister Britain had had, or the services had had, was in fact uh, Dennis Healy. Uh, the services were cut, but he knew what he was doing, and they knew what he was doing, and they could get on with it. And the next one uh, they, they thought was very good was George Robson, another socialist. Talking about getting on with it, the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, the largest warship ever built for the Royal Navy, now has its first hands. Leading rate, Claire Butler, this week became the first person to receive the ship's cap tally, despite the fact the ship is still being built in Fife and won't be finished for at least another eight years. Christopher, how, how can this be? I must, must point out it's because it's being built in Fife. That's not why it's not going to be finished for eight years. <laughs> <coughs> um, I no, wasn't what, insinuating no. anything. What happens when a ship goes in, a uh, ship is being built, it gets to a certain stage when it starts to be a bit like a ship. And just as when a ship is goes in for two years, main, uh, maintenance period, uh, uh, the same thing happens. You have a standby crew. Standby ships company, standby hands in different stages of it. Um, it doesn't mean that you get, let's say, 400, uh, 400 sailors on board. You have a skeleton uh, ship's company on board. And in fact, I wouldn't mind betting if she stays in the Navy that um, uh, Claire, Claire, Butler, Butler. Claire Butler will probably have three maybe four jobs before the Queen Elizabeth is actually launched. Um, it's, it's that sort of thing. She's not going to be there. She's not going to, she's not going to spend her whole life in, in the Elizabeth. And anyway, it might be flogged off to another Navy. On that note, we shall leave it for today. My thanks to all our contributors and, of course, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Tell us what you think about today's stories on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Do join us again next week. But from me, Kate Chabot and Christopher Lee, thanks for listening and we'll hear you soon.